Hello, Yuma. I'm Quentin Grafton, Professor of Economics at the Australian National University and the convener of the Water Justice Hub, a platform for truth-telling and justice for all in relation to water. In this spirit of justice and reconciliation, we also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia on which this podcast has been produced and honour their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. The Water Justice Hub is a place for everyone, especially First Peoples, to promote their voice and respond to the global challenges of delivering sustainable development and water for all. This podcast is an initiative to represent water warriors and their stories from around the world, sharing ideas and narratives to assist in education, advocacy and water policy. Along this series, you will hear from a variety of voices promoting fluid conceptions of water justice as critical to the survival of individuals and also to our collective survival. Please listen with intent. Subscribe and share this podcast to assist in the fight for independent voices, equitable decision-making, and ultimately, water justice for all. So let's now move our focus to North America where expectations of near-perfect water systems are far from a reality. You may have heard of the infamous case of Flint, Michigan, where lead and Legionella contaminated water has plagued the city since 2014. The effects of this water crisis are still being felt today, but many other parts of North America are also vulnerable to these kinds of challenges and are far from being addressed appropriately. For all the wealth in this part of the world, issues of class and race, ethnicity drastically impact water quality, while many American citizens have grown to distrust their water systems. Kat and Tim have found some water experts and water warriors to explain the discrepancies in water quality and the consequences of water injustice. We hope you're informed and stay inspired by these guests and their efforts to bring water justice to North America. Thanks, Quentin. In many places in the United States of America, water infrastructure is getting old. Much of it needs replacing, and it's extremely expensive to do this across such a large landscape and when you're servicing a large population. Although America is a wealthy nation, it still allows poor water infrastructure to seriously damage its citizens. Tim spoke to a pathologist to find out how dangerous water contaminants can be. Particularly children, because they're vulnerable because of the developing brain, Lead will impair their, well, intelligence level, we know that. It causes behavioural problems when they start getting increased lead levels. So things like attention and impulsivity, hyperactivity, these children will have that because of, you know, the lead that they're drinking that's been contaminated in the water. Dr Travis Brown is a general pathologist from ClinPath Pathology in South Australia, host of the podcast This Pathological Life. Travis is well-versed in medical history and interested in stories that surround diseases. Travis provided his expertise in explaining the dangers of poorly treated water. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Travis Brown. Thank you very much for having me. I'd love to start by asking what kind of dangers are present in contaminated water? So there are lots of issues, lots of problems, uh, lots of diseases come through water. One of the amazing things about modern society is we think that modern medicine is the reason we have so few diseases. And it's actually not modern medicine. It's actually sanitation that's happened in the past 100 to 200 years. 
So things like plumbing, just, you know, regular plumbing that takes waste away from houses, getting regular clean fluid, clean access water is actually the biggest public health measure that we've received in in public society these days. So when that all goes wrong, it presents a significant cost, uh, not just in human lives, but kind of on health systems. You you can think about it through various ways. We've been looking at North America in this episode. And of course, the infamous case of Flint comes to mind. Can you give us some insight into some of the tragedies, the kind of human tragedies that happened? So how that came about, Flint ended up changing the water. It was a cost-saving measure where they changed the water from Detroit normal water processing to the Flint River. Uh, And unfortunately, Flint River was notorious for being polluted. It was a cost-saving measure and it did save them some money. The problem was this has been a a uh, river that's notorious for being catching on fire twice. And the, the industrial waste was known to go into that area. The problem with that is it also fed the water system for, unfortunately, communities that were low uh, socioeconomic, a lot of them in, living in the, below the poverty line. And so what ended up happening is this had contaminants in it, particularly lead, because lead in that area went into the waterways. There was a few other things, unfortunately, that was also in it. They also got what we call fecal contaminant, Mm. as well as Legionella, and that's a bacterial infection that can cause uh, people to die, and some people did actually have a Legionella outbreak. The problem was with lead, though, lead's a contaminant and it, it affects people. And so this was in their drinking water. So about 18 months after they changed to the the water system, people started to complain. Unfortunately, the complaints fell on deaf ears. And this continued for some time. And, And then what ended up happening is they did some routine surveillance on the water. What they found was it was contaminated with lead. Unfortunately, there's no safe level of lead in water. There are limits as to how safe it can be. And the problem is we talk about it in industrial terms, such as parts per billion. And we talk about it in human testing as in micrograms per deciliter. So they're two sort of different measures. One's a biological and one's a sort of industrial. And the problem was when they tested, there was about 40% was it they call a, a very serious level. So it was over five parts per billion. And that's considered in their their own terms as, you know, quote, very serious, unquote. And then there was 17%, which was 15 parts per billion, which is effectively the action level. And so something needed to happen at that point in time. Far out. I can't comprehend just the feeling of vulnerability people must feel when they turn taps on. We sort of take for granted that when we drink water, it is healthy. It, it is something that it is good that we're putting inside us. Absolutely. And, and that's, that's the miracle that is, you know, water. I mean, if we look back, you know, we think about it, there's been water that's been available to houses for, you know, a few thousand years. You go back to, to Romans, even at that point, they actually had pipes that delivered water. The problem for them is their pipes were lead. And so they got contaminated with lead water. Now, that's, that's still a problem, unfortunately, in a significant proportion of the United States where they've still got lead pipes. And so lead goes into the water, you're drinking it, and the problems for the people, it's a problem that sort of can be ignored, and particularly in low socioeconomic places, unfortunately, it tends to get 
ignored more than, than other places. Mm. Well, I'm really looking forward to discovering just how we can address these, these policies and, and perhaps where these policies, um, the policies already have failed. Thank you very much for your time, Dr. Travis Brown. Thank you very much. So with these abundant risks, regulatory bodies are in place to keep the hazards out of American taps, but they're not always adequately resourced or effective. With a strong reaction to cases such as Flint, Michigan, the world is now watching how the US is handling these issues. And as more is known about water quality and human health, more cases of water anomalies are being identified by researchers who are aiming to improve water services for all. The case of Flint is actually an interesting case where a utility, the city of Flint, decided to break away from water purchases that it was actually making from the Detroit system. So the problem started once they decided to go alone and disconnect from that system. And of course, there were a variety of political challenges as well as real missteps in terms of really basic engineering decisions that would have been standard but went wrong in Flint. So thinking about economies of scale and not creating small systems that are, are just not equipped to go it alone. Maura Allaire is an assistant professor of water economics and policy at the University of California, Irvine. Her research spans floods, water security, and the ways humans interact with their water systems. Mora was a postdoctoral fellow at Columbia University's Earth Institute, and she has also worked and consulted for private and public organizations. Mora has identified challenges for water security and quality for struggling communities through her field studies conducted in the United States of America, Southeast Asia, and West Africa. We spoke to her about some of the challenges facing the US and where we might look to solve these problems. We're joined on the Water Justice Podcast by Maura Alea. Thank you very much for joining us. Great to be here. Maura, I'd love to start. Um, we have a, a paper here that we've been reading from you, uh, National Trends in Drinking Water Quality Violations. It was really fascinating for us in researching North America to find that drinking water issues or just water issues weren't exclusive to to Flint. Can you tell us a bit more about the water quality in the US? Absolutely. I certainly became very interested in analyzing the full national scope of water quality challenges when I was actually living a half hour from Flint when the news broke there about the lead crisis. And so like most folks, I became very concerned about was this a one-off event or was this more, more of a trend of something happening and perhaps falling under the radar and not being recognized. So as I was living in Michigan, I, I launched this national study of all community water systems across the United States and found that in 2015, when the Flint crisis broke, about 21 million people received water from systems that were not in compliance with national regulations. And I especially found that the types of communities bearing the brunt of these concerns were rural, low-income communities. So a bit different from Flint, what made Flint so shocking was that it was a major population center that was being affected by this lead crisis. But there's sort of a hidden crisis unfolding across small communities across the U.S. that perhaps are not well-equipped to meet these challenges because they might lack the technical managerial financial capacity to provide safe water on a regular basis to their communities. Mm. Laura, you just mentioned safe water. Can you tell us a bit about what are some of the health impacts of having unsafe water? What does that look like? Why is it a problem? 
So health effects of impaired water quality could really run the gamut from immediate health concerns like gastrointestinal illness or acute risks, especially in young children. If babies get exposed to high level of nitrates, they can develop a syndrome called blue baby syndrome, and that can be life-threatening. But then there are also more chronic health concerns like elevated risk of cancer due to prolonged exposure from some chemical contaminants. So it, it really spans quite an array of health concerns from, from acute to, to chronic illness. And as you've just said, one of the key things is not just exposure, but prolonged exposure to some of these contaminants. Is there information about the rates of prolonged exposure? Do you know how many people might have been exposed at, at levels that are dangerous because it is ongoing? Absolutely. So in the national assessment that I conducted, I estimated that, you know, in 2015, about 21 million people were exposed to contaminants that exceeded health-based standards in the U.S. Now, that was just an assessment of non-compliance with water quality standards. It did not go so far as to assess health impacts. And actually, the surprising thing is that we know very little about water-related health impacts in the United States and across higher-income countries generally, because a lot of this research is typically conducted in lower-income country settings. But now we're increasingly learning about potential health concerns that might have been flying under the radar. It suggests some pretty significant strains on you know, public health systems at a minimum, right? Can you give us some insight into some of the proposed solutions? What kind of things work best? Is it something that would be better handled privately or is it something that would be better handled kind of national uh, regionalization even of water? Good question. So I think one of the challenges is the current fracturing of water services in the country. Unlike other utilities, water and wastewater really haven't been consolidated in a meaningful way. There are 50,000 community water systems across the country, and the vast majority serve incredibly small populations, which means that they might not have an adequate customer base to support a full-time staff member. A lot of water systems have to make do with part-time staff, or they don't have the latest and greatest treatment technology to attempt to meet ever-evolving water quality standards. So some states, and surprisingly, the two examples here are both California and Kentucky. Both of these states, and Kentucky actually led the way more than a decade ago in terms of taking a serious look about how many water systems were in the state and taking a serious look at which systems could begin to consolidate and build up the necessary economies of scale that you really need to support a major infrastructure system. Water is incredibly infrastructure intensive. And California is beginning to take the same path that Kentucky led more than a decade ago. The state now has a mandate that you know, they can consolidate systems where it would make sense to do so. And there's also now dedicated safe water funding for communities that are struggling. But really what this means is that various states are saying communities don't need to go it alone anymore and that perhaps there needs to be a more unified statewide approach to these types of challenges. Mm. Uh, what are some of the root causes behind drinking water quality problems in the U.S.? 
Sure. Excellent question. A lot of it is both this fracturing of systems, creating systems that might be too small uh, to be viable, as well as having concentrated pockets of disparity, right? There's 50,000 community water systems across the country, and not all of them serve communities that would have the wealth base that could provide safe drinking water on their own. In California this year, I wrapped up a study, especially looking at disparities across income and across race. And despite the state beginning to make real strides and real progress in terms of narrowing compliance gaps, these still exist across low income versus high income, across Latino serving water utilities and non-Latino serving and African-American serving systems uh, versus those who serve other communities. So we know that we might need to devote some of these resources to communities that are currently underserved. Mm. All right. Thank you very much for your insights, Maura. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me. While progress is being made towards narrowing disparities in quality of service, it can't happen fast enough. Cases like Flint have an ongoing legacy and could be causing water consumers across the country to question the safety of the water coming out of their taps. 16 million people in the US do not trust their tap water. And that 60 million do not drink their tap water actually. A very small fraction of them actually do not have access to water. So, you know, that's why they don't drink. But vast majority, 58 to 59 million out of that, actually do get tap water. And predominantly it's of good quality. So they have lost the faith that their tap water is safe. Dr. Sri Vedacharlam is the Director of Water at the Environmental Policy Innovation Centre and the Urban Water Editor for the Global Water Forum. Sri completed his PhD at Ohio State University where he published research on water quality, wastewater and water reuse until 2011. Sri continued research at Cornell and John Hopkins Universities to eventually become a Legislative Fellow for the US House of Representatives. Sri is an advisor to private and public institutions on strategies and policies to adopt to the challenges of governing water in the USA. We sought Sri's input into the relationship between municipalities and consumers. Thank you for joining us, Sri. It's such a pleasure to have you here. Wonderful. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Anytime. Well, we're really excited to have your insight into some of the water justice considerations in North America. Obvious examples of places like Flint in Michigan come to mind. Can you give us some broad considerations of water quality in North America, a highly developed part of the world? Sure. The reason Flint is important here is that even though it was a local problem that affected a small city in America, capture some of the underlying forces that are happening in many different cities across the country. Although Flint was a unique event, the forces that made Flint happen are existing in many cities. Flint also had this national reverberation. So the study found that out of the 60 million, a third of them were turned off after Flint. So that number increased by significant proportion just after the Flint crisis, because everybody sitting in their house was thinking, is my water safe? Is my city, is my water system, is my local government taking care of the services enough that I can trust them? And not knowing the answer, their default was, if something is wrong in Flint, something is wrong in other cities, it's possible we have something going on here. And so there's this deep mistrust of drinking water, 
which is not unconnected to a general distrust of government, a general distrust of public services over a long period of time. But the end result is that we have a huge number of people in this country who get good quality drinking water but are not satisfied and they seek out of their services. So it sounds like there's some tension there. On one hand, there are some very genuine and very serious problems with drinking water quality. But on the other hand, then there's this problem of being able to trust your drinking water in the areas where it's fine. Are they coming together in strange ways, these two problems? Those are two different problems, yes. So, so there are actual water quality issues that we see in many cities. Water systems are predominantly independent. So even though they're part of the city, they're run by revenues that people pay into. So you connect it to the water system, you pay a water bill and a wastewater bill or a sewer bill, and that's what keeps the system running. So there are no big grants that the water systems receive. They, they receive loans in the U.S., and those come predominantly from the federal government, but they can also be a mix of you know, state funding, uh, private, uh, they can go to the bond market issue, you know, municipal bonds, uh, private investors can invest. So, so those are sources of financing. Those are not sources of funding. So that money has to be paid back like a, you know, a home mortgage. So a bank gives you a loan, but then eventually you need to repay it. And so that puts a lot of pressure on water systems to you know, upgrade their systems and you know, keep providing their services. And oftentimes they fail at doing that because things are not, you know, they're not able to keep up. The money that they generate from the revenues is simply not enough to do these big investments, big changes in treatment systems, big changes in conveyance and distribution systems, adding new treatment technologies for newer contaminants that they're finding now, like PFAS, removing lead service lines, for instance. Many parts of the country have the pipes that are buried installed several decades ago. So those are challenges that water systems face. And in addition to that, you have a disparity in services, the quality of the service. So locations that are predominantly black and brown, they receive a higher share of contaminated water. Violations, water quality violations are higher in those communities. So you have actual water quality challenges. But then on top of that, you have distrust. And some of that distrust is justified because they have gotten poor quality water, they've gotten poor services, they've gotten slighted by officials when they pointed out those problems. So all of that is justified, but then there is this added layer of misinformation and mistrust on government in general, in water services, local officials, that is essentially a toxic mix of mistrust that sort of pervades a lot of water systems across the country. How many resources are allocated to effective communication from the government's perspective about quality of water, about even just water supply? Like in my situation, I don't hear a lot about water quality coming into my household. So my potential mistrust has nothing to combat it. So this is not unique to the United States, the Western Hemisphere. Water services generally are technical engineering services. So they have a history of hiring engineers who are trained to do problem solving. So there is a problem, you solve that by doing engineering, new technology, you fix it, and then you call it a day. And at the end of the day, if your customers are satisfied, that's a sign of success. But what it doesn't account for is that people don't seem to respond that way. 
there's no positive reinforcement. So nobody calls up their water system one morning and says, hey, thank you so much. I just opened the tap. I poured a fresh glass of water. I made some coffee. I took a shower. Great service. Kudos. You guys are doing a great job. Nobody does that. But people do complain when there is an actual problem. So you have a water main break, you have brown, dirty looking water, your taps run dry, whatever problem it is, then they call the water system. So utilities, water systems have no experience with proactive communication. They're always reacting to situations. So they're always responding to emergencies and, and these kinds of challenges. So that's a shift in thinking. Newer systems, newer age leaders are now confronting with that problem. You know, they are thinking ahead and figuring out how we can get ahead of that. How can we proactively communicate with the public, tell them about the services, tell them about the benefits that they're receiving from the revenue that they're paying into the system and just being a good resident of the community. So that's a complete shift. And I'm not sure, you know, many utilities have crossed over to that side. So there are very few systems who are engaging with their customers in that way, telling them about the value that they provide. It's always chasing metrics and responding to complaints or at best responding to compliance benchmarks. So, you know, you have to meet water quality standards set by EPA in the US and other agency in, you know, any other country. So you're simply saying, yes, we met these benchmarks. Our water quality is safe. You know, our contaminants are lower than whatever standards have been set. We have done our job. In today's world, that's simply not enough. Mm. Yeah, I think now there's a much higher expectation for water utilities and other similar services to be more transparent and to communicate very clearly. I understand you've looked at that recently, Sri. You've looked mm-hmm. at the reports that come out of water utilities. Uh, what did you find? So in the U.S., we have a requirement that water systems provide a report to their customers every year. So it's once a year requirement, happens in July, and that's meant to be a retrospective look. So these reports are bound by a federal rule. It's called the Consumer Conference Report Rule, and the reports themselves are officially called Consumer Conference Reports, uh, CCRs. Most commonly, you'd say these are water quality reports. And then they are supposed to say where the source water comes from, describe a little bit of, you know, the topography, maybe, you know, describe the name of the watershed, what treatment techniques they use. And then there is a required list of contaminants that they should talk about and provide water testing data. So there is an actual standard. If there is a goal that the utility or the agency, federal agency EPA has set out, and then what is the minimum and the maximum and, you know, the range, the median and all that. So they're supposed to provide all that. The problem is that those tables are presented as is. There's a big table with numbers, lots of chemical names. It's not obvious that people can clearly or easily understand that. And, you know, even the surrounding text is not meant to be understood by an average resident. So we did an analysis of about 250 reports of what we call medium-sized to large utilities in the U.S. And we found that those reports are One, difficult to read because they're at a much higher reading level. Two, they're not found in languages other than English. So even in places where a decently large proportion of residents speak another language or show lower proficiency in English, they're still available only in English. And third, we did a digital accessibility test. So for individuals who are visually impaired or older residents who have trouble reading on the screen, you might use a tool that reads the document. 
screen readers are essentially meant to do that, but with assistance. And that assistance has to be provided by the people who create the document. So they have to provide tags and label those things. And we found that those documents that uh, utilities are posting on their website are not designed to be read by these digital screen readers. So on numerous counts, we think that these water system reports, the CCRs, are essentially failing the public because they're not accessible to different sets of people. And we've gotten a lot of good reception from water utilities, from state agencies, EPA, and we're hoping, we're expecting that some of these changes will come about naturally. Water systems will do their own changes um, as they realize the value of these accessibility features. And hopefully when that comes through at the end, we will have a much better looking, a newer, more accessible, more, more understandable version of the consumer conference report that will help bring people along, bring their trust back because they can then understand what their water system is saying. That sounds really cool and great to know that even though there can be problems around communicating like very technical information, there's a lot that can be done that we're not mm-hmm. doing already. So that's excellent. Can we just go back to the way water utilities were funded? What does that funding model mean for affordability of water? It actually means that if you are living in an area that's generally wealthy, it has more resources, then your water quality is going to be great because it is essentially taking money from the residents and then putting it back into the water system. So a water system that serves a more wealthy area can increase their prices because they are confident that people can pay those higher rates because the community in general is well-resourced. And so they'll have newer technology, better communication. As we talked about, they can hire communicators in addition to their engineers. So they can go out and provide the, the feedback, receive feedback from the community, provide services, provide the messages. And that keeps the system humming because you know more money coming into the system means better quality product. And better quality product means happy customers. They keep paying. So you know that cycle continues. But that's not the reality in most of the country. So most systems have a mix of customers and a lot of systems do serve low-income residents. And so those systems are trapped in this downward spiraling cycle where less money coming in means no regular updates. So you're not able to buy the new equipment, softwares, treatment system, good staff, cybersecurity, you know, all of those things. And then as a result, your system is much more vulnerable to changes that are happening, climate shocks, population shifts, new regulations, day-to-day breakdowns. And so, you know, lower quality product, mistrust, less revenue coming in. So, you know, that's the cycle. So the reliance on local revenue is great because it connects you to the community. It makes you, you know, reliant on your customers. So you want to serve them because that's when your system works well. But it also has this downside that once that whole system breaks apart, there is no putting it back together. It's really disconcerting, sad state of things. Sri, I really have to thank you for bringing us some insights. We're fascinated to explore this area further. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. The solutions we have discussed so far come from studies and political advisory, but water justice doesn't solely come from these places. The people who pay for water also pay the price for failures in our water systems, and they can also fight for their own justice. So what we know over and over again in American culture 
is that race plays out very desperately in terms of how policies are enacted, in terms of equity and injustice. And what we know over and over again is that if we don't get our act together in terms of understanding that as as one person is not doing well, then none of us are doing well, then we're going to constantly find ourselves in a sinking ship. And I say right now, we're on a sinking ship. Monica Lewis-Patrick is a human rights activist and a founder of We the People of Detroit, where she leads volunteers and community experts in the struggle for water justice in Michigan. She is a pivotal figure in the environmental justice community and has engaged thousands in her fight for safe, affordable water access in underprivileged communities. Monica has served as a lead legislative policy analyst for the Detroit City Council, where she researched and authored legislation. She has also served and consulted several institutions in the advancement of water equity. Monica met with Kat and I to teach us about her fight for water justice that has inspired so many. Monica Lewis Patrick is the president and CEO of We the People of Detroit. Monica, it's such an honor to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making time for us. Pleasure to be with you, Kat. Thank you. I guess we'll just start with briefly for our international listeners asking, what is We the People of Detroit? Well, I've been to describe We the People of Detroit as a small nonprofit here in the city of Detroit doing a mighty work that now has expanded not only locally, but now we're national and international. And our focus is around the human right to water and sanitation. Uh, It sounds very basic and simple, but what we know here in Detroit is that over 181,000 households have been shut off from water since 2014. So we see ourselves in dire need of a solution. And also prior even to the pandemic, we were already in a crisis. Mm. Exactly. I guess prior to the pandemic, you're already in a crisis. Uh, We hear internationally about water shutoffs in Detroit. Can you give us a brief explanation of what's happening? Well, what has happened is that prior to the bankruptcy, the legendary bankruptcy that we've all heard about, what most people don't know is that that bankruptcy was contrived in order to take over the water department and then regionalize the system to really start moving it toward privatization. So it was a way to actually set aside the democratic process. Detroiters should have had the right to vote on whether or not their water department was regionalized. They weren't given or afforded that democratic process. And what we saw is just really a raiding of a water department away from Black control. Uh, Detroit provides water to about 40% of the population of the state of Michigan. Uh, So about 3.2 to 4 million people get their water from an infrastructure that was built on the backs of residents here in the city of Detroit. And even as they move toward this regionalized system under Great Lakes Water Authority, that system is not equitable or just. The majority of the debt is on the backs of Detroiters. The majority of the expense of running that department is on the backs of Detroiter. But the majority of the governance structure is headed up by majority white suburbanites that have a deep hatred and resentment of Detroiters because they have been fed a lie for 50 years that somehow they've been gouged by the citizens of Detroit when in actuality, based on the research that we conducted at We the People of Detroit, if you go to our book, Mapping the Water Crisis, the disenfranchisement of African-American neighborhoods in Detroit, what you'll find is that we were able to demonstrate with science and data that it's not Detroit marking up water rates, that Detroit actually sells and is legally forced to sell water at a wholesale rate to all of its customers. So to 126 municipalities and townships, we can only sell them water for what it costs to purify, clarify, and distribute. 
But what is happening is at the municipal level, they're being marked up anywhere from 100 to 1,000 percent. And because of this deep racial divide in Michigan, it's being blamed on Black Detroit. Farah, I, I can't fathom the the emotions, the the anger, the just the sense of powerlessness, I guess, that m- most citizens feel. Obviously, we the people becomes an avenue for, for people to become active and, and kind of gain a bit of franchise. Can you give us some insight into perhaps even just the emotions of regular Detroiters at the moment? Well, I mean, you have a couple of things happening. Right now, we were able to force at the early stages of the COVID pandemic a moratorium. Of course, you know, if you go back and look at last year, uh, many people were sort of watching the national landscape that COVID was looming. There was a global pandemic coming. And then what you saw starting to happen in January and February of 2021 is that you begin to see that we were struggling to even secure water for relief. We run a water rights hotline where we should distribute water, not only in Detroit, but to our neighbors in Flint and also to other municipalities like Benton Harbor and and other communities. We've even shipped and sent water as far away as Mississippi and to the West Coast. And so this is something we normally do. My CFO is an expert at negotiating these contracts and we on a regular basis spend 60 to $100,000 purchasing water at a high level. So when you go from buying truckloads, semi truckloads of water to where you can only buy one or two cases of water and you have tens of thousands of families with no access to any form of running water and no other place to get water. And then on top of that, you have neighbors in other communities with major issues around lead lines and PFAS. Those persons are struggling because they're buying, not only paying for the water that's coming into their houses, but then they're having to buy water, bottled water, because they can't trust the water coming through their tap or they can't access any water coming through their tap. And so as we saw tens of thousands of Detroiters and then all across Michigan, we saw over 800,000 residents across Michigan challenged with the inability to afford their water. But then we knew from Dr. Elizabeth Mack in 2017 at Michigan State University, she put out a report saying that by the year 2022, 35.6% of the nation would not be able to afford their water. So this has been something that has been encroaching upon the American public for the last 50 years as we've seen a divestment by federal government here in the U.S. So we have seen the federal government uh, at the height of its contribution to the water infrastructure up until 1977. The U.S. government was contributing about 63 to 67 percent of the money that went into maintaining the U.S. infrastructure around water. What we see them contributing now is between seven and nine percent of the U.S. budget toward water infrastructure. So as you've seen that divestment over the last 40, 50 years, you've also seen the shifting of the weight of the cost of maintaining water infrastructure go to the states. And then the states are shifting it to the local municipalities and then local municipalities are shifting it onto the ratepayers. Well, what we know is that the American public, for the majority of us, for working folks, our pay, our salaries have not kept pace with these increasing costs of water. Just in Detroit alone, water rates have gone up over 438% over the last two decades. When you go 45 minutes north of us to Flint, water rates for the people of Flint 
They pay some of the highest water rates in the country. On average, $250 a month for water they still can't trust to drink or bathe in or cook with. And right before COVID was declared, they were on pace to seeing their water rates double to $500 a month. 45 minutes south of here in Toledo, water rates have gone up 40% in the last year. And then when you go three hours from here to Chicago, water rates have tripled in the last eight years. So this is a systemic issue. This is not just Black Detroit. This is all across the country. Mm. How heard do you feel from places like the West Coast? I feel very heard by the West Coast. We have amazing uh, partners out in California, like Jonathan Nelson with Community Water Center. They're doing amazing work in California with advancing this concept of an affordable rate structure for low income or no income residents. And so what we believe, this is not about free water or giving people a handout. This is about really keeping dignity and humanity. And so uh, what we see and know that's happening in California, they have tens of thousands of small municipal systems that cannot maintain themselves. So they're in dire need of using consolidation as a method of addressing their water crisis. But what we have found in majority Southern and urban communities, they are using consolidation to weaponize water to either gentrify urban cores or using it as a way to extract more resources out of people that are already struggling to keep food on the table and keep the lights on and take care of their children. Yeah, particularly at the moment with the global pandemic where having water available is more important than ever before. We were talking earlier, though, about where we go from here. Like we, the people of Detroit, is doing incredible work. Can you tell us a bit more about what you see, the pathway for the future and how to transform the situation? Well, I think our elders, and uh, I have to really lift up a, a body of work that supersedes We the People of Detroit. We've been working together, five Black women who really just started out uh, after we got off from working on the weekends, coming together to try to solve issues and concerns in our community. But the water struggle in Detroit, as I said, has been going on for two decades. And some of the work that supersedes us is the work of the Honorable Joanne Watson, and the late great Marianne Mahaffey, who was a, a white woman, but a social worker in the city of Detroit and understood that by cutting off water, you actually were displacing majority women of color and children. But it was through her eyes and through the leadership of the Honorable Joanne Watson that those women worked with community and members like Michigan Welfare Rights and People's Water Board to craft the water affordability policy that we now see implemented in places like Philadelphia and Baltimore. So it wasn't Detroit sort of sitting somewhere wringing its hands, not knowing what to do. We actually are the architects of a solution that is based on uh, the foundation of the human right to water and based on the UN's analysis that says that human beings should not be paying more than three to four percent of their income to access water and sanitation. Well, just in Detroit alone, the majority of Detroiters are paying upwards of 10 percent of their income to access water and sanitation. We also know that Detroit, if you look at the demographics, over 40% of our population lives in abject poverty. 60% of our households are headed up by single women of color with anywhere from two to four children, also caring for an elder or someone else in their family. And then 70% of the people that work in the city of Detroit don't live here. So that on its face is a tax drain on the city. So when you know those kinds of demographics, what we've got to be able to lift is the transformative thinking that's coming out of Detroit. So we're not just the canary in the mind in terms of disparity 
and inequities and injustices, we're also the canary in the mine in terms of being a champion of human rights and an equitable way of being able to ensure that every human life has access to clean, safe, and affordable water. And so that has been the approach that we have taken and it's through some of the conversations we had with elders, not only the Honorable Councilwoman Joanne Watson, but Dr. Gloria House, who is a legend here in terms of her work, not only with SNCC, uh, but also her work around environmental and human rights. And she's been a critical part of saying, you know, first of all, all of you have been to the academy. You all have advanced degrees. We don't have to wait on anyone to tell us what's happening in our communities. So that compelled us to create our own research table. The second piece was that our children were sitting in rooms with us as we were having all of this devastating conversation about the lead poisoning in Flint and the water shutoffs in Detroit and the algae blooms in, in Toledo and the PFOS in other parts of our community and also here in Detroit and Flint. And so as we talked about all of this disparity, we were talking about what was happening to us, but what our children were saying, it's not just happening to you, it's happening to us too. And so out of that was birthed We the Youth of Detroit. And through those conversations, what we learned from our youth is they're not stuck in trauma. They're actually prepared to go into transformation. And so as we were stuck in trauma, what we had to know is that we had to adjust our perspective. We had to sort of straighten back our shoulders, realize that these traumas had happened, but our children were prepared to be solutionaries. And so in looking at it as a solutionary, what they said is, yes, let's analyze and talk about what got us here, but let's spend more time talking about how we move to the next level of equity and justice. And so through them, we have partnered with other organizations like Freshwater Future. We have built deep relationships with groups like Toledo Junction and the Flint Development Center that has the first youth-led water testing lab in the nation. Toledo Junction, in the middle of all of their algae bloom crisis, Toledo Junction has created a micro enterprise in their community where youth are not only paid to do environmental and, and, and agricultural work to lift up their community and mitigate uh, stormwater impacts and, and stormwater overflows, but those young people also in the evenings on their own time have been able to receive $5,000 mini grants to infuse their own entrepreneurial spirits. A group of young men have created a bike repair company. Another group of young men have created what they call the grasshoppers, where they professionally cut grass and do landscaping. Another group has come together and they are doing learning skill trades to be able to do home repairs in their neighborhood. So to me, this is the kind of innovation that our youth are offering. We just finished and we're actually celebrating today that this is the seventh annual we, the youth of Detroit Social Justice Summer Internship. They spent the summer not only learning GIS mapping, but actually going door to door to test homes in the city of Detroit. We were able to target two of the heaviest zip codes with water shutoffs, COVID-19 spread, and also the heaviest number of lead lines in the city. They also, the youth figured out that it wasn't just lead lines and water shutoffs. They also were able through their research to find that the majority of youth that have high levels of lead toxicity in Detroit live in those two zip codes. So how powerful is it for young people not only to discover this information that really is informative for young adults and others in terms of policymaking, but it's young people that are using science data and technology 
to really lift these voices and bring together a better understanding of how we got here and how we're going to move it forward. Just admirable is the only thing that the only word that comes to mind for people who have been dealt a terrible hand and have empowered themselves. Thank you so much, Monica Lewis-Patrick, for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Tim. Thank you, Kat. It's been amazing. Thanks, Monica. Here ends our discovery of water inequities in America and the work toward water justice for all people. We hope that you have taken some ideas to ruminate on and a new perspective on how water works in your life. As we move on to water justice in other parts of the world, we'll be considering more water justice concepts and discovering new ways to think about and solve problems for water management. For now, if you found any of these interviews of particular interest, you can find out more information about our guests' work in the episode description. Please consider subscribing and sharing this episode as it helps spread the ideas of water justice. We hope you'll stay tuned to the Water Justice Podcast. Bye for now.